I passed through these fields that, man, they seem so endless and boring when you're in a car and you just can't wait to get through them. And when you're walking by them, you know, there's no such thing as a field when you're walking by it. It's the, the handful of individual plants you're next to and the bird that lands on them and the you know breeze that's blowing on your skin. And it's a, just a, an entirely different thing than the blur that you see out of a car when you're, you know, enclosed in air conditioning and you have music blasting. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talked to the guy who's featured in this documentary film. For me, there's a big difference between reading about a place in a book and being there in person. What it feels to stand in front of it, to touch it, to discover something about it. All of a sudden, it comes alive to me. That's Matt Green from The World Before Your Feet, a film directed by Jeremy Workman and executive produced by actor Jesse Eisenberg. It documents Matt's attempt to walk down every street in New York City, a project that has spanned more than six years and 9,000 miles of urban walking. Now, as you may know, if you've been listening to my podcast this season, walking has become a travel fixation for me of late, and I plan to do a lot more walking-oriented travel in the near future. You know, years ago, I read a book called The Journey Home by Edward Abbey, who's one of my favorite outdoor writers, and he wrote that, quote, walking stretches time and prolongs life. It makes the world much bigger and therefore more interesting. You have time to observe the details, end quote. This principle has really been borne out by Matt Green's walking experiment in New York City and points beyond, and I really enjoyed talking to him. He has a thoughtful, almost aphoristic way of speaking, which means this episode is longer than most simply because I think Matt has so many wise and relevant things to say about walking and how it can deepen your relationship with the world and with life itself. Matt talks about how walking can be a strategy for focusing on exactly where you are rather than where you're headed. He talks about how walking through a city like New York differs from and is somewhat similar to walking across America, something he's also done. We talk about how deciding to walk down every street in a city like New York frees you from the tyranny of recommendations and top 10 lists and allows you to see the city in a new kind of way. This episode is brought to you as usual by Airtrex, which for almost 30 years now has specialized in round the world and multi-stop itineraries for vagabonding journeys. Check out their trip planning tools at airtrex.com and see how you can save money for your dream trip. But for now, please listen in as Matt Green and I talk about how slowing down and experiencing places at a walking pace has a way of deepening what you can get out of the experience of travel. What you've been doing, which is walking every street in New York City, is sort of an inversion of the usual travel approach, which you go to a city and people tell you, exactly where to go they narrow things down to a to a short list of attractions and this is such a normal way of approaching cities that we don't even think about it we just we ask for people's short list of advice whereas you literally have been walking every street in the city of new york um and this is actually something i did once i was uh, when i was researching a book about souvenirs i walked every street in the fifth arrondissement of paris and it was a really interesting experiment just because it was a neighborhood i thought i knew well but it turns out i didn't um and so i'm going to ask you a question that i don't know maybe you're tired of hearing it but but why why walk every uh street in the city of new york well i mean i think you just hit the nail on the head there um it's you know you're kind of the first person i've talked to who's uh you know seen that exact thing right off the bat that uh it is really 
first and foremost, just the kind of opposite um, way of traveling that we normally think of, you know, when we have a vacation and a limited amount of time and we're trying to see highlights and things like that, um, which, you know, is how I had always traveled my whole life. Um, but then after after I moved to New York, uh, which was in 2005, and I'd started exploring the city over the next couple of years, uh, I I heard about a couple people who had walked every block of Manhattan. And something about that just really stuck in my mind, that just that opposite approach to, to seeing a place where instead of really focusing on what's better than what and, you know, spending all your time trying to make sure you don't miss out on the best things, to just even everything out and treat everything equally and just go to everything. And, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't have a particular reason why I wanted to do that. You know, I, I don't think there's like a, a particular theory of why it's, why it's better or anything, but just something about the concept really grabbed me. And I have found over the years that um, there's a really wonderful effect of it, which is that it just takes away this obsession with what's the best and is this place where I am right now the best? You know, should I go somewhere else? Am I wasting my time here? You know, should I, should I be trying to figure out where I could be spending my time that's better than where I am right now? And that's just such a negative way to be in the world. You know, it's just so much nicer to, to be appreciating where you are right now. And, you know, knowing that you're going to go to every block in the city allows you to do that because you don't really have to focus on, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't have to focus on what you're going to miss or anything. You know, you just see what's there and you'll eventually see everything. Now, when you were planning this, did you talk to some of these people who had been to everywhere in, in Manhattan? Were you, was there any anxiety or am, sort of, am I crazy to be doing this? Or did you just throw open the door one day and start walking? Um, I, I, I hadn't spoken to any of them. I mean, that was years ago that I, I heard about them. And, um, you know, in between then and when I started this walk in New York, I, I quit my engineering job. I did a walk across America, um, which interestingly kind of followed the the same thing in a in a, in a different way, uh, which is that I just used um, like Google walking directions for my route across America. And so, yeah, across America, um, which was pretty funny. At least at the time, they would even give you um, like walking directions to Australia, <laughs> and it would just and it would be like you know. <laughs> Like turn left on Front Street, walk 0.4 miles, turn right on Water Street, walk 0.2 miles, get in a kayak, kayak, <laughs> whatever part. It, it, it you tells know, 6, you to get in a miles kayak? across the ocean. Yeah, it's, it's like getting a kayak. It'll be hilarious because it's like, you know, you take a turn, you go 0.4 miles, 0.2 miles, then you get in a kayak and go thousands of miles. Then you get out on the coast of Australia, you walk 0.4 miles, take a right. Um, anyway. So they'll, you know, they'll attempt to give you walking directions anywhere, even if they have to stretch the meaning of walking. Um, but but the, the cool thing about about getting those directions was that, um, in fact, you know, it's funny you mentioned when you go somewhere, you ask people, oh, what should I see here? What should I see here? And that's kind of what was going on at this very beginning of planning my cross-country walk, because people would just tell me what I had to see, what I couldn't miss. And I didn't even have like a route narrowed down at all. So these points were just all over the map. And, you know, to walk through all of them would have been to walk probably 50,000 miles or something. Hmm. So, you know, just by necessity, I, I couldn't see anywhere near all of them. And then I was just in this position where 
I had this list of great things and I had to decide which vast majority of those things I was going to not go see. So it was just kind of this very negative way of, of planning a route. And so to get away from that and also just out of laziness, um, I, I just used these walking directions that I didn't have to think about at all. And, you know, unintentionally it had this really great effect, which was that again, kind of like the way this walk in New York is set up. I just never had a destination or a particular attraction or highlight I was looking forward to Hmm. because I didn't know anything I was going to see along the route other than, you know, I knew I was going to Rockaway Beach, Oregon. That was the end of my walk. Um, But I didn't, you know, I was never in a position where I was thinking, oh, man, I can't wait to get through these next 10 miles so I can get to that one interesting thing up there. And again, without any real intention, it just completely opened up the world to me because it just made whatever field I was standing next to in the middle of Ohio or North Dakota, it was just as important as anything else in my life at that moment. And so I just started to see things in a lot more detail because of that. And, you know, when I had, I had driven across America before, you know, I'd, I'd passed through these fields that, man, they seem so endless and boring when you're in a car and you just can't wait to get through them. And when you're walking by them, you know, there's no such thing as a field when you're walking by it. It's, the, the handful of individual plants you're next to and the bird that lands on them and the you know breeze that's blowing on your skin. And it's a, just a, an entirely different thing than the blur that you see out of a car when you're, you know, enclosed in air conditioning and you have music blasting. Did people end up asking you for like your top 10 list? I mean, it just seems like this, such a natural thing. People want to know highlights, right? They want the, the short definitely. version. Yeah, they, they definitely do. Um, and I, I very, I never can come up with highlights. I don't, you know, when you do a long enough trip with that perspective, you don't even think of things in terms of highlights. It's just exciting to be out there seeing somewhere new. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you know, I could remember a couple interesting things I saw recently, maybe, hmm. but it's just, my brain doesn't really store it in that way because it's also, you know, the, say the New York walk, cause you know, now I'm, I'm within easy traveling distance of anything that I found over the years. So you could think it would, it would be a natural approach to, to keep a list of the best things. Cause I could go back to them anytime I wanted, but I don't know. My brain doesn't store stuff like that now. You know, I, I can't really think about what, what I liked better. Um, because just the, you know, I don't know this, this walk has just brought me so much more, um, yeah, satisfaction or fulfillment than anything I've ever done in my life. Hmm. And, that's all without without trying to keep track of things and and you know always being at the best place and so I think now my brain just looks forward to being somewhere and walking through it and learning about it. It's you know whether it's exciting or nothing happens is almost irrelevant. Well, I'm curious to know more details about your New York walk specifically, but this uh, this walk across America sounds like a different monster. I mean, this is a silly question, but did you have Siri on? Was Siri telling you to you know turn left in Iowa and and go this way? <laughs> no, um, I don't know. Was she she I don't know if she was around. And that was in 2010. I did that. Okay. Um, but anyway, I was I was uh, you know one of the things I had to be very careful of was saving my phone battery because hmm. my phone was my camera and you know my map and everything. So. I basically kept my phone off all the time. <clears throat> and um, I just, you know, I'd like say the next, uh, I don't remember, next week or so of directions, I would just write them all down on paper. 
Okay. So I would have that with me. And so, you know, I had to kind of be keeping track of how, how far I walked roughly, you know, about when I would expect a turn to come up because I wouldn't have a thing that would tell me, you know, in, in a quarter mile turn left on blah, blah street. Uh, so, you know, I would turn the phone on sometimes if I, if I wasn't sure, you know, I thought I missed a turn, I, I could turn it on and check, but, but generally it's just off to, to save the battery. Did you mostly sleep in fields and stuff? Um, how did you logistically do this walk across America? Um, so my primary approach was to knock on people's doors and ask if I could camp in their yard. Okay. Um, I had, I, I had, you know, all my camping stuff with me. I was pushing everything in a converted jogging stroller. Okay. Um, as a runabout stroller, this, this guy, Roger Berg in Oregon, he makes them, he has like a couple guys who work for the, work for him. They, you know, make everything by hand. And I'd gotten a recommendation from this other guy, Gary house, who's, he was the first guy I'd heard of who'd walked across America. And I emailed him with some questions and by the way, so I, I was sitting at my desk and I, you know, my engineering job and I was trying to figure out a way to not be an engineer anymore. And that's when I started thinking about walking across America. And so, you know, I just went to the internet and searched, can you walk across America? Cause you know, I didn't know, are there enough safe roads that connect or whatever to get you there? I really had no idea how it would work. And, um, yeah, I found this guy, Gary house who had done it a couple of times and he'd walked across other countries too. And I think that was the moment, just like kind of when I, I found out that some people had walked every block of Manhattan, that that something clicked in my head there. Same thing with when I found out this guy had done it, I think deep down, I just knew I was going to do it myself one day. And I, so I emailed him with some questions. And, um, when I looked at his site, I saw that he was pushing a stroller and I thought that's the stupidest looking thing I've ever seen. And then, you know, the next day I sit down and I'm like, you know, backpacks are pretty heavy. Maybe the, you know, maybe that guy's got, got a good idea there. So I asked him, you know, what kind of stroller to use? And he just told me about this guy in Oregon. And so, um, so I had this really great, like hand welded, um, jogging stroller that I was pushing everything in so I could, you know, carry all my camping stuff and everything without it weighing me down. And, uh, I don't know, I just had enough faith in humanity that I figured maybe I'll have to knock on 10 people's doors every night and one of them will let me stay with them. Um, but it turned out to be way, way easier than that. About three out of four people would, would say yes, let me stay with them. And, you know, some of those people would then go back inside their house and I would never see them again. Uh, but a, a large number of them would, would, you know, even if they were a little weirded out at first, they'd come talk to me while I was setting up my tent. And then then they'd invite me in the house, you know, they'd get more comfortable with me, invite me in, we'd eat dinner together, you know, somehow they would sense that I needed a shower. I don't know how they, how they knew that, but, um, but you know, they'd let me take a shower or do my laundry. Um, I think I went to one laundromat on the entire walk and, you know, everything else was just taken care of by the people I stayed with. Have you read Canary Row by John Steinbeck? Wow. That's funny. You mentioned that. Um, when I, I mean, it's still up on my website. You know, there's a U.S. walk component of my website. And um, yeah, I had a little, you know, a little info section about, you know, what I'm doing, what I'm carrying, blah, blah, blah. And um, there's just a, a big quote from Cannery Row there. Huh. Huh. The only the only literary quote mentioned in any place. Yeah. The thing about Doc walking across the country. Okay. Yeah. No, that's exactly what I thought about because I know that Doc, at first he says, yeah, I'm walking across the country and like all the hosts will hide their chickens and their daughters. 
And then he says, right. yeah, yeah I'm, I'm trying to win a barroom bet. And everybody's here, well, come on in, you know? I mean, did you get did you get any of that vibe or were most people just sort of curious about you? Not your... at all. Okay. I didn't at all. And that makes me think that uh, Steinbeck was was writing that out of out of ignorance, for sure. Hmm. Um, you know, maybe that was based off some other interactions he had had or something. But I found that. I mean, you know, some people would make the comment, oh, you, that's the best thing you can come up with to do, or I wish I had that much free time, or, you know, something a little snarky. But um, the vast majority of people were just fascinated. Um, and, you know, I found the exact opposite, which is that as much as we feel this pressure to, to be able to answer the question of why, you know, we, we feel that pressure. We feel like we have to have a real answer for people that, that we need to sum it up in some clever way about why this is important and valuable, this thing that I'm doing. But I think that's generally a self-applied pressure. I think if, if you can say with confidence that you're just doing something because you feel called to do it, and you don't have a particular reason, I think people respect that. And more than that, I think that people even have this sense of like, wow, this guy's on a mission. Like, I got to help him. I got to help him. I, I want to make sure he finishes this mission he's on. I don't know why he's doing it, but, you know, they would even sense that importance somehow. And so I found that that people love this idea of, of just helping this guy out who was doing this crazy thing. And it made me think a lot about uh, human nature because, you know, a lot of our thoughts about the state of the world today and the state of our country is that, you know, people are so divided and we're so angry at each other and there's so little in common, you know, and, and so many of us have so much ill will for others. But I think that's really just a result of, you know, big, seemingly intractable problems. You know, that's something the human mind can't, can't wrap itself around these big, big problems of the world. And so one of our our response to that is just to stop caring, to become callous, which I think is understandable. You know, if, if you're surrounded by these problems that you yourself can't solve, I, I mean, it would be rough to, to constantly be thinking and worrying about all of them. You know, at some point you have to detach a little bit, but when there's a person, a single person who knocks on your door and they need a place to stay that night. And that's obviously a really important thing for them because, you know, they need somewhere to stay. And for you, it's just a matter of saying, yes, you can put a tent on the grass that grows in my yard. There's this really cool asymmetry there where the person can, you know, they don't have to give that much, but yet they're solving such a big problem for you. And I found that people really love that. And, you know, I mean, just naturally, I would be so grateful to them and you know, they, they could sense that for me because, hey, problem solved. I got a place to stay tonight. Oh, you want to feed me leftovers from dinner? Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. A hot dinner. I don't have to just eat my granola bars in my tent tonight. So I think people love to, to solve problems for other people. They just have to seem manageable. Um, and, you know, just reflecting on my own life, I could I could see that where anytime someone came to me with something that I could solve that, did, you know, didn't take a week of my time and a lot of stress and everything. If I could, if I just knew how to solve their problem, God, that's the best feeling in the world. And so, um, as much as I loved reading Cannery Row, I really think, I mean, I really love that book, but I, I think Steinbeck was completely wrong on that point, um, about, you know, for those listening who, who aren't familiar with it, it's just about this, this character doc who, you know, one day in his past, he had just, he was feeling anxious. I think he had, what he broken up with a girlfriend or something. 
some kind of love problems. And, uh, you know, he just throws on a backpack and started walking across uh, somewhere in in the like Midwest, wasn't he? Somewhere across the Midwest. Like Kentucky to Florida or something like that. Maybe. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. And he just found that, you know, if he told people that he didn't have a reason for walking, they would look at him really weird and be suspicious of him. And so he eventually just decides he's going to tell people what he lost a bet he's doing or he's doing it because of a bet. Um, and so and then they could accept that because they could wrap their heads around it. But but I just didn't find that was the case at all. Um, I think if you if you tell people you don't have a reason for what you're doing and you yourself are insecure about that fact, that comes through and, and maybe people become suspicious then. But if you are secure in the fact that you don't have a reason for what you're doing, I think that's that's kind of contagious and and people buy into it. Well, I think Steinbeck's friend, Ed Ricketts, who's the basis for Doc in the book, did a walk like uh-huh. that in real life. And I suspect that if it was closer to the hobo era, to the Great Depression, maybe people mm. were more reflexively suspicious of that sort of thing. Um, it could be. I, I did find that a lot of – I just found over the years of traveling in general, and I, you know, I'd be interested to hear your, your take on this also, um, is that you start to realize how much – of your perception of the world is solely contained within your own head. Like two, two people could have the exact same experience and come away with a completely different lesson from that. There's in fact, another great, um, weirdly, another great Steinbeck, uh, passage in East of Eden that, that I always think of related to this. Um, have you ever read that? I haven't read East of Eden. I've seen the James Dean movie. I've read most all of Steinbeck. I really like him, but um, I haven't yeah, read East I, of Eden. I hadn't read it for the longest time, even though I also really liked him. And then a friend, we kind of made each other read a book of our choosing, and he made me read East of Eden. It was very long, but uh, it was an excellent book. And anyway, there's a part that really stuck out to me, which, um, again, it was a while ago, and I'll butcher it. But basically, there's a, a Chinese character who um, – I think he works for a, you know, like a white family in California and he speaks in this kind of pigeon English. And I think you find, you find out some point in the book that like he can speak perfectly fluent English, but when he tries to do that, the, the like white family doesn't understand him. Hmm. And, you know, it's kind of, I, I think it's a little bit of a metaphor, but basically Steinbeck presents it as this idea that, you know, Sometimes if if you're not presented with what you're already expecting, you just you don't understand what's happening. You you don't perceive it correctly. And so I've just found that, you know, you can you because traveling for me is all about just destroying stereotypes and narratives about people and places. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you go somewhere for a week and and someone's who lives there or who's been there a lot, you know, they tell you, oh, don't go to this neighborhood. Watch out for this kind of person. If you just go there for a week. Any experience you have, you can kind of fit into that narrative. So you're going to have a relatively few experiences. Your brain just naturally ignores the ones that, you know, conflict with it. And anything that reaffirms that idea is really appealing. You know, when that happens, you know, I think we all know that feeling of like, yep, I knew it. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought would happen. You know, that kind of almost self-satisfied kind of feeling. And it's, I think that's just, you know, they're, what's that called like confirmation bias or something, you know, you, our, our brains are just kind of tend to, to fit information into our expectations. 
And once you break beyond that kind of short-term travel, you start to have just so many experiences that that they they start if you finally kind of realize like oh that thing I believe just really isn't true. I've I've now had enough enough things contradicting it that that I, you know, I can't just just put them under the bed and pretend they're not there anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, if, if Ed Ricketts had, had gone on a walk for a couple of weeks and people thought he was weird, I mean, yeah, maybe it was the era he did it in, or maybe it was his own weird personality, or maybe he just, you know, expected that from the beginning and kind of, you know, that's how he interpreted things. You know, I'm sure this, this takes hold in New York where you're going to neighborhoods that people tell you to stay away from, but I'm from Kansas, which is, Oh, oh yeah middle of the country. And then also, invariably people from New York, I love New York, but New Yorkers will say, oh, Kansas, there's a lot of Republicans there. And it's like, I literally will be in Kansas for months and not talk about politics at all. You know, there's this, there's this notion, I guess there's shorthand by which we understand all these places, be it a neighborhood five blocks away or be it a state in the middle of the country. So it feels like the, the walking and talking is a good way of peeling back these shorthand assumptions that we have about places. So, so true. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, again, kind of what you said just really resonates with my experience because, you know, I, so I started out, started my cross country walk in New York where I'd been living. And so the main, you know, the main concern people would have for my safety in terms of like other people was that, you know, I'd be in Montana and I'd trespass on somebody's ranch and they'd shoot me. <laughs> You know, they're like, yeah, like those people out there, you know, they have so many guns, they're nuts, you know, they're crazy. What are you, you going to do? And so, you know, I walk across the country and of course, nothing like that happens. Um, one, one thing I was going to say before is, you know, I was, I was asking permission to be on people's yards. That was my main approach, but there were times in specifically in, in Montana and, and other parts out West where there just were no houses around. I couldn't, I couldn't knock on a door. So I was just, you know, I had to sleep on private land. It was somebody's cow pasture. And you know, I mean, I, I had no problems with that, of course. And it even hit me like, you know, say, say this is your, your land and you go driving by it and you see a tent there. Like, are you going to go see who's in this tent or are you going to like wait until the next day and just hope they're gone? You know, who knows what kind of nut is in there? Like, why are you going to, why would you even try to confront them? All they're doing is, is sleeping on your, you know, one fraction of your many acres. And so that also just, you know, sometimes we really don't put ourselves in the other person's shoes and we, we don't think about things from how a normal person would approach that. But anyway, so I, you know, go across the whole country and have no problems with anyone in the middle of the country. And the funny thing was all these people in the middle of the country, they'd be like, wait, you're what? You're from New York? Like you walk there and you don't get shot? I thought <laughs> everyone gets shot there. And so that's when I realized, yeah, we all have these sh idiotic shorthand notions and the, the thing that's really idiotic is how strongly we believe them, given that we have almost no experience. Yeah. And a lot of times it's just, you know, you just believe the so-called expert and you take that that narrative of theirs and adopt it as if you lived it yourself, you know, for your whole life. You, we believe it, believe it so firmly. I mean, I do it myself all the time. And you almost aren't aware you're doing it until you finally have enough experience to realize, oh, that thing was just not true about these people. And, you know, New York being a city of so many different kinds of people, I mean, such a diverse place. It's just one day after another is, is another stereotype, you know, crumbling into the dust. 
I want to get to the New York uh, trip in particular because, I mean, I feel like we could talk about walking across America for three hours, but you didn't actually uh, – weren't involved in a film about walking across America. <laughs> right, um, true. But, but I'm curious to know, like, walking across America is not – is no small feat. And you know, to use another – Nice one. To use – oh, right. No, no small feat. <laughs> right. To use another phrase that wasn't used a few years ago, like, it's a sort of a bucket list thing. It's the sort of thing that somebody would walk across America – and then feel good about it, and then cross it off their list. Yet you watch across America, and then you went back to New York, and you kept walking. Uh, what was what was the connection between these two walking journeys? Um, well, I think that first of all, I don't think it's I think it's not uncommon to have people do a thing that they're like, I just got to check this off, and then then you you know you can't stop doing it. Like you hear about people doing it, running a marathon, or like going to see a total eclipse. Like, I just got to do this once and then it happens. You're like, all right, I got to do it again. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'd come back from that walk. And so again, I, you know, I had quit my job um, not too long before I, I started that cross country walk. And part of the reason for doing the walk was to get myself out of that job. It was just, you know, it was this engineering desk job, which, you know, was fine. But I, I would get depressed when I would think about doing it. X number of years in the future. Like that was a depressing feeling to me. But at the same time, you know, I could just keep going into work every day. It was okay. And so I just never followed through on my promises to myself to to figure out a new, a new line of work or, you know, a new type of job within my field or something. Because just nothing was bad enough to force me to do that. So I just kind of kept this middle ground of like, eh, it's okay, but it just, you know, kind of dulled me too. And so part of the part of the reason for doing the cross country walk was just to force myself to quit that job and presumably, you know, find something from scratch when I came back. But when I did the walk, it was, you know, that was the happiest five months of my life. And, you know, like I said, I'm staying with people or camping in fields or whatever. So I'm paying almost no money. You know, I'm buying food and I had this really cheap health insurance plan and, you know, there's just so little money involved in all that. Um, and you, you know, people would even give me food. They, people would pack me lunch for the next day. Sometimes <laughs> like there was just, I, I was paying so little and I was so happy and it just really shifted my calculations of like, you know, before the idea was like, I'll get out of this engineering job and I'll come back and I'll find a job that I like. And then after this walk across America, it was just like, Hey, you know, if I, I can change the other side of the equation, you know, rather than think about how much money I earn, I can think about how much money I spend. And if the lower I can get that, that amount of spending, the more freedom I have in choosing what to do with my life. And, um, you know, realizing that, God, if it came down to it, I could work some crappy job, save up a few thousand bucks, and I could like walk the country for a couple years just from that. Um, so that just, man, that just really made me feel a lot freer in terms of what I do with my life. Because up to that point, I'd always really focused, you know, I mean, I just always been a very like conservative person in terms of decision making, where it's just like, okay, I'm just going to do this thing. It's a solid job. I can save a lot of money. You know, that that's how I always thought about things. And, and it just, this really put me in a different place and a much freer place. And so I came back to New York with no idea what I was going to do next. And I worked a couple odd jobs, worked on a farm upstate and a few things like that for about, um, I guess around a year or so before I really started thinking about the idea of doing this walk in New York. 
Um, and that was, again, just based out of, you know, I'd heard of people who'd walk every block of Manhattan. And I was thinking, could I somehow do that for the, all the five boroughs? You know, Manhattan's like seven or eight percent of the land area of New York City. So, you know, it was a, a big undertaking to think about doing it for all five boroughs. And the, you know, I, again, there was no real reason for it other than I'd love this walk across the country. And I thought it would be I thought it was a cool thing to, like, take that same approach of not really planning anything out or knowing where I was going or looking for highlights. But instead of doing it in a single strand across this vast place to just do it really intensely in a single place, hmm. you know, kind of take that one line and ball it up like an intestine or brain or something and, you know, stuff it all in one place. And um, so the thing, the thing that was tough about that was figuring out where I was going to stay in New York. Cause that's the big monetary cost of being in New York, you know, sure. paying rent. And, um, you know, there, there aren't a lot of people with yards where I could camp, you know, that, that kind of idea wasn't really feasible for New York. And so I was thinking like, maybe I have to get some sponsorship or something, you know, I could get some shoe company to sponsor me. And I sat down and tried to like write a letter to a shoe company about this. And it was just like the grossest feeling I ever had. And it was terrible. I felt so dishonest. You know, I was trying to like, come up with reasons, right? I was trying to answer why. I was trying to say why this walk is beneficial and what it can mean for your brand. And it was terrible. I, it just felt, it felt so awful to be immediately in that place where you're like lying already, you know? And um, so I just, I couldn't do that. And I just wasn't sure how I was going to make the money work. And then I, I wanted to mention this earlier, so I'm just going to weave this in here. Um, I was reading about this woman, Peace Pilgrim. Sure. Um, uh, for, you know, listeners who aren't familiar, uh, she was a woman who in 1953, I believe it was, she was 45 years old at the time. And she'd had, I think, a fairly normal life. And she decided to just give everything up. She gave away all her possessions, all of her money. And all that she owned in the world was the clothes that she was wearing, her jacket and the, you know, the stuff in her pockets. Like it was like a toothbrush and a comb and, you know, pen and paper, basically. That's all that she had. And, um, she decided that she was going to walk across America, um, you know, starting in California, heading east. And she was going to just do this completely on the kindness of strangers. Um, she was going to not, not even ask for anything. She was just going to wait until people offered her food or offered her places to stay, you know, seeing her walking along the road. And if they didn't do that, she was just going to fast and, you know, sleep beside the road. And uh, her, her, driving motivation was to talk to people about how to achieve peace in the world. And her idea was that if we can find peace within ourselves, if we can all find inner peace that, you know, that will reduce the conflicts between people because a lot of our conflicts come from this inner turmoil. And so she just thought, I need to tell as many people as I can about this idea. And I'm going to do this by this walk and just anyone I have the opportunity to talk with, I'm going to talk with. And so she did the walk and she made it all the way across the country being absolutely penniless and just having, you know, one person after another take her in and take care of her. And then she just turned around and did it again and again for the rest of her life, the last 28 years of her life, um, until she died in a car accident at 73, being driven to like a radio station to do a talk about her walk or do an interview about her walking. Um, but, you know, for almost three decades, she was completely destitute by any kind of objective measure. Um, but yet she was just by all accounts, the happiest person anyone had ever met. You know, she so strongly believed in what she was doing and she got to act that out every day. You know, she got to 
to fulfill this belief she had every single day. And, you know, I would even remember hearing about her, like she'd go into these like morning radio station, morning shows on the radio station where like, you know, and they're trying to make jokes about everything. They're trying to make fun of everybody. And they'd have this like hippy dippy lady and thinking like, oh man, our listeners are going to get a good laugh when we just mock her relentlessly. And she just turned out to be invincible because there was no, there was no cracks in her facade. You know, there was no weakness or no lack of confidence because she so, so fully believed in every aspect of everything she was doing that any kind of question they could ask to, to kind of, you know, probe inside and find something they could make fun of. They just couldn't because she believed in everything she was doing and she would answer every question generously and genuinely and just with an open heart. And she just went everybody over no matter how skeptical or dopey they, they thought she was at first. And, um, that just really stuck with me that, that she had just redefined this idea of, of wealth, you know, like we think, we think of wealth as being the money that you can have to buy yourself well-being, but at its core, it is well-being. That's what wealth is. And, and she had realized that for her, well-being had nothing to do with, with money at all, it had to do with this connection with people and the sense of purpose. And Anyway, someone had told me about her after I finished my U.S. walk. So I was reading about her and I was thinking about trying to do this walk in New York. And at some point I just realized, all right, I'm just not I'm just not going to have a place to stay. You know, I've got enough friends I met through this walking group that I used to lead. I bet they'll let me sleep on their couches. You know, I could string together enough of those to do this thing. And I'm just not going to worry about about the, having the place to stay, about having the money for that. And that was the last kind of piece to fall into place. And once, once that clicked, then I was like, all right, I can do this New York walk now. And, you know, I don't know, a couple months after, after I had that realization, I was starting the walk. One thing I'm curious about before we get too much into New York walk, which is, which is fascinating uh, in and of itself is why walking of all the things you could have done when you realized you didn't really want to be a desk engineer anymore. I mean, you could have, visited all the minor league baseball parks in America or go, gone. I'd already this... done that. Okay. No, just kidding. Okay. <laughs> just kidding. Well, I mean, there's just, there's a, there's a, there's a, a long list of what you can do to sort of transition out of a job. I mean, you could go to every place where pot is legal and, and smoke weed in the U S I mean, why walking? <laughs> there must be some sort of idealism. Um, or did you walk your way into sort of this sensibility of walking or was walking something that you were always attracted to as a person? Well, first of all, I don't think pot was legal anywhere in 2009 or 10. So, okay. okay. That was enough. But, um, am I right? I think, I don't think it was still after that. Um, maybe but, medical in no, California, I mean, that, but that's not my oh, area true, of expertise. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I don't know anything about it either. Um, but yeah, um, I, you know, I guess thinking about the question that way kind of puts you in the frame of mind of like being in this place where you're thinking, okay. I want to do something other than this job. Let me figure out what the best thing would be. But that wasn't the place I was in. I was just in a place of, oh, here's a thing I want to do. So I'm going to do it. So I wasn't thinking about it in relation to other things or what would be better, you know, what would be a better choice. It was just the thing that I wanted to do. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, other than that, I had walked a lot before and I, I had learned that I loved it. Um, my parents are really big walkers. They, you know, they go walking every morning. Um, you know, they have for years and years and years all through my childhood, you know, they're, they're out there every morning going for a walk. And, um, 
especially when I when I finished college, I first lived in Washington D.C. for a year, and I was working as an engineer there before I came to New York. And um, one of my other plans to not be an engineer was to become a stand-up comedian. And so I started doing a lot of open mics that that year I lived in D.C. And um, I actually lived just across the river in, in Arlington, Virginia, and I was right by the, the Key Bridge going into D.C. And so I was often about three or four miles away from wherever the open mic I was doing was in D.C. And so just to kind of really just to clear my head and give myself a chance to kind of go over my routine. You know, I finish work for the day. I come home and it just gives me some time to, to kind of clear my thoughts and just practice. I would just walk there. Um, so I really started doing that not out of a sense of I love walking, but just as, as a way to, to, to use the time I'm taking to get to that place productively. But, you know, inevitably, I, you know, I, I wouldn't, it was kind of like the, the cross-country walk in that I wasn't taking this route because there was something exciting to see on the way. It was just the most direct way to get to wherever I was going. I started to realize how many incredible things I was seeing on these random streets. In D.C. Um, or in In D.C., yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. In D.C. Um, like, sp- I specifically remember seeing, it was like one night, you know, I was probably more attentive when I was walking back from the shows. Which I would just do that anyway, I guess. That that wasn't even productive at that point. You know, I had to get to work the next day and it would have been faster just to take the metro home. But um, I would just walk home too. And I would probably be looking around a little bit more then because I wasn't, you know, focused on practicing my routine. And um, I remember just, you know, one night passing by the, I'm pretty sure it was the Albanian embassy or the consulate or whatever they're called in DC. Um, and it was just this really beautiful building. And you know, probably it was like the light of a street lamp was shining on some some detail of the building, maybe like the two-headed eagle that's like the country seal or something. Maybe, I don't know, some kind of wooden carving or something I feel like was part of it. Anyway, whatever it was, like, it just struck me like, wow, then, you know, in some ways this is like the center of the Albanian presence in America, you know, in, in some way that's centered right here where I'm just walking by right now and there's nobody else out on the street. Like, it seems like the most insignificant place. And it just, that was just a reminder that like every place is significant to somebody, you know, it's the center of somebody's life, if not a whole group of people. Um, and so something about that experience or those experiences of walking around DC, um, really made me start thinking about things in a little different way about, you know, it's not just about, have you been to this great place? Have you been to this great place? But just about this connection, this chain of places that you see when you're walking, you know, the the way one place goes to the next, goes to the next, goes to the next. And that's a relationship they have and a connection they have and that you, you get to connect into that. And it's different than just isolated highlights. And so that was definitely a, a kind of formative thing for me without a doubt. And then, um, then I came to New York and, um, you know, I certainly have those other kind of, the, that kind of travel you were talking about. I mean, I, a friend and I, um, visited every subway station, like in a single ride over 20, 24 hours, went through every subway station. Um, I have this life goal of using the bathroom in every Capitol building in America, (laughs) uh, which I've been slowly ticking off since 2002. Um, so I certainly like appreciate those things too, in their own way. Um, but also when, when I came to New York, I just, you know, a lot of it for me actually was, is about looking at a map. And seeing, especially like far flung corners of the map, and just wondering what are things like out there. Um, I had a, a friend after I finished college, a friend and I took this big road trip from Virginia, where we went to college, um, up to the Arctic Ocean in Alaska, up to Prudhoe Bay. Mm-hmm. And um, 
that whole trip was driven by this, like these mystical place names in Canada that we'd seen on maps growing up. You know, my, sometimes I remember I would go into work with my dad and he had a, he had a Rand McNally, you know, the classic like North American road Atlas in his office. For some reason, I was just drawn to these maps of Canada and these places like, you know, Moose Jaw and Medicine Hat. And um, so actually our, our trip to Alaska just started with like, I wanted to go to Moose Jaw and, and my friend wanted to go to Saskatoon. Uh, you know, these are places in Saskatchewan. And um, so it started as a trip there. Like that's what we were going to do to celebrate graduating. And then, the, you know, once you're there, you're you're so close to, to Alberta. And then, you know, wow, you know, we could go to the Yukon like oh my God, can you believe it? We could set foot in the Yukon. And then once we're there, you know, we're not that far from Alaska. Oh my God, there's a road that, that you can drive up to the Arctic Ocean once you're in Alaska. So a lot of that was driven by this fascination with, with what's left unsaid by a map. You know, a map is like a little hint at what's there and there's so much mystery to it. And so strangely enough, the same thing was true in New York, which seems like in some ways the most overexposed place in the world. But, you know, once you get here, you realize... Everything you've seen about New York is about this tiny little strip of it, of Manhattan and maybe a little bit of Brooklyn. Mm. And there's so much mystery in New York. And you look at the subway map and you, what are these stops all the way out at the end of these lines? Like who lives there? What does that place look like? Staten Island, like it's only this little inset on the subway map with one little, it has its own little railway line running down it. Like what is there? You know, what's going on there? And so just for that reason alone, you know, I would go out and just start walking around these places just because I wanted to know what, what the map translated to in reality. And uh, then, you know, that just kind of reinforced this idea that you can just go anywhere and walk around. And it's, it's you know, it's going to be a great day. Um, and so, you know, having done that a lot while I was working, I just started thinking about taking these, you know, I'd do these 20-mile walks on a weekend I would think, what if I just took those and just strung them out one after the other and, and went in a line somewhere? What would that be like? And so that's kind of what led me to do that, that walk across America. But it wasn't like a calculated thing of like, this is the best thing to do right now. It was just a thing that, that I felt I wanted to do. And why New York? When you were done, when you finished your walk across America, there's a lot of cities to choose from. Um, and actually, you had a connection to D.C. So why New York of all places? Well, I was, I lived in New York much longer than I lived in DC at that point. You know, I'd been living in New York for years. Um, so it was, you know, it felt like home. So that was definitely part of it. And just knowing that it was the biggest city in America, uh, was certainly part of it too. Like it just, just seemed, you know, if you're going to walk every block of somewhere, why not, why not do the biggest place? Um, but primarily it was probably just cause it was home for me. You know, I felt like I'd spent all this time on my cross country walk exploring these places that weren't home or, you know, actually I would say learn, learning how to make them feel like home, you know, learning how to make the whole world feel like home. Um, but what if I did, did that kind of thing, but even more intensely and in the place that I had called home before, you know, to, to get to know that place so much more intimately than I ever would have imagined. So, so that, yeah, that's why it was New York. And how did it end up, changing your relationship with the city. I mean, it sounds like you were already, you know, you, you had some interesting uh, geographical initiatives like the subway experiment. Mm -hmm. Then once you started walking, I guess, like, what did you learn? What, how, how did things change? What did you, what did you see when you were going everywhere instead of just recommended places in a city like New York? 
Sure, sure. I guess that, you know, this started a little bit before, like back when I was still working, before my cross-country walk. Because I, I mentioned briefly before, I, I had this walking group. Um, and basically this, this was kind of this happenstance thing where I had had this idea. This was after, after I'd done the subway ride and I'd done another big walk with a friend. I thought, oh, it would be cool to walk every bridge that connects to the borough of Manhattan. To walk all of those is like a 30, 35 mile walk. Um, and so I was just thinking like, you know, I, I just done like a, a longer walk than that with a friend, you know, we did like 150 miles over five, over five days through New York. And that walk was very much around like, what highlights should we work into? How much can we work into this 150 miles? So I started thinking about this, this, um, bridge walk and it was like, you know, it's a big walk, but mileage wise, it seems kind of small compared to the 150 miles. Um, so I was like, well, maybe what if I just like tried to get a whole group of people to do it with me? Like that would be kind of a new, a new angle on it. And that was really all the thought there was to it. It was like, oh, that'd be something different. And I was like, how can I get people to walk do this 35 mile walk with me? So I had this idea that, oh, I'll, you know what? I'm going to do, I'm going to make a whole series of walks that'll lead up to it. They'll start with an eight mile walk and build up in mileage. And primarily they'll just let people have advanced notice that this 35 mile walk's coming. And so, um, so I had like a series of eight walks building up to that. And the first one again was eight miles long and they just got longer and longer. And so I thought when I started those walks, I'm like, okay, I got to jam pack these walks with like fascinating stuff. Cause I'm asking these people to come join me, spend like a whole day on a weekend, um, you know, walking around New York. I better make sure like I fill it up with good stuff I know about. And so in the early days I was really trying to plan these things out and stress out about like making sure there was enough interesting stuff there. And as time went on, I just started to realize, like, these walks are just as good when I, you know, if I was really busy and I didn't have time to plan it out as much, that walk was just as good or maybe sometimes better than the one I really planned out. And I just started to realize that the, the planning of them was almost unnecessary, you know, to just to be in a place, a new place with people um, where you're all sharing thoughts and observations about things. And, you know, this group size, it'd be really great. I mean, that. You know, sometimes it would be 20 or 25 people, but a lot of times it was around 12 people who would show up to these things. And it was just this perfect size of like sharing thoughts and ideas. And it just makes you realize how interesting the world is. Like it, you don't have to go to a place that, that has a, a catch or has a thing, you know, has a, has a highlight there. Just if you're in a, in a place with curious people, that place is interesting. And you know, that was just furthered by my cross country walk where I was in places that really everyone would call the middle of nowhere. And they were still interesting. And I didn't even have other people around then. It was just me and my thoughts looking at this field in North Dakota. And it was just not boring. You know, one of the most frequent questions I would get is like, don't you get bored doing all this walking? And yet no one would ever ask me that when I spent all my time, you know, sitting under fluorescent lights at a desk staring at a computer screen. Yeah. Which good point. By my experience, is so much more boring than being outside somewhere. Um, but I think that's because in most people's normal life, the time that they are walking is boring to them because it's time they're trying to get somewhere else. They're trying, you know, the place they're walking through is an obstacle to them. But when you can when you can change it from an obstacle into just your life, then it just opens up in this way that I could never have even understood before I did it. Um, so, so yeah, that, that biggest lesson kind of starting with those group walks, making its way through the, 
the new the the cross country walk and getting it to New York. New York walk is just everything is interesting. Everything in the world is interesting. It's just a matter of you, you know, opening yourself up to it. Being being outside walking it just adds to it. You know, you could say everything is interesting and you can find yourself sitting in a, a room looking around and be like, what's interesting in this room? But something else also changes with your brain when you're in motion and you feel feel the breeze. And, you know, there's this feeling of of being outside and moving that that I think is a big part of it, too. And it feels like you there were certain patterns that attracted you as you were walking around New York City specifically. I mean, you, you sort of collected barbershops and uh, 9-11 memorials. And you walk through a lot of green spaces that sort of surprised me as someone who I know New York fairly well, but there are a lot of places, not just park places, but sort of overgrown, you know, formerly thriving neighborhoods that have sort of gone to seed a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So how did your, did you, did you just suddenly, we were walking one day and, and you decided to start collecting barbershops or, or how did, you also went to the, like the tallest tree in the city. Um, you, yeah. you pay a lot of attention to, to herbs and, and plants and stuff. And so how did these, these uh, objects of focus come into your experience? Um, okay. So the barbershop thing, specifically it's barbershops who use a Z in their name in place of an S. Okay. Like a common example would be the word cuts, ending it with a Z, you know, Jimmy's cuts ending with a Z instead of an S. Um, but there, you know, there's others more, more creative versions of that too. But anyway, um, I, I had seen, uh, one day on one of these group walks back in 2009, um, we passed by this place in Coney Island called faders cuts with skills. So I had three Z's in there. And, you know, there's a lot of things in the world where you kind of, you observe them subconsciously and then one day it clicks and you realize how many of them you've seen. So that was the moment for me. I'm like, you know, barbershops, there are so many barbershops that put Z's in their names more so than any other type of business that's out there. So that was just a weird observation I had in 2009. And so then, you know, so now it's like end of 2011, I'm getting ready to start my New York walk. And a number of people are like, you know what you should do? You should keep track of this thing or this thing. And they're all very practical things. It's all about like something that could be monetarily useful or something that could help further some theory, some way to like learn something deep about New York. And the thing that kind of put me off about that is those are all ways of saying, you know, you're doing this walk, which is kind of pointless unless you can attach a cause to it or, you know, a focus to it. Like that's what could make this walk good. And for me, that was the exact opposite of how I felt. Like I felt like what people need to be doing in the world is not having to have a reason for things like doing a thing because you just feel called to do it. And like, that's what made me come alive in my life. And that's what I want other people to do. And so the last thing I wanted to do was be like, okay, I'm doing this walk, but here's what it accomplishes. And so kind of as a reaction to that, of people telling me, oh, you should keep track of this or that. I decided, you know, I like the idea of keeping track of something just in terms of like being really aware of that thing. Like that's a neat thing, but I didn't want it to be anything particularly useful. And so I ended up picking these two things, which you know, are completely different from each other. One was like, I'm going to see how many barbershops I pass that, that have a Z in the name in place of an S. Like that'll just be a great series of photos. It'll be a funny thing to, to make myself really aware of. And then I also decided I wanted to see how many 9-11 memorials are out there because, you know, initially you think of them as being like, there's the big one in lower Manhattan that they've been building for years and years, the official memorial. But, you know, a friend had pointed out one out to me in a courtyard of a, of a church. 
um, you know, a little a little granite monument with a nice little design feature that kind of echoed the geometry of the Twin Towers. And so I was thinking, like, I wonder how many of these smaller memorials are out there because it was such a, you know, an, an important and, you know, monumentally tragic moment in New York City's history. Like, how how is that being memorialized now, you know, 10, 15 years later? And so I just thought those would be two really cool things to to keep track of. They're not they're not they're not important in any way that, you know, has any kind of financial or theoretical or, you know, scientific use. Um, but yet they're they're really interesting in their own right. And they're completely different from each other. So that was really just my kind of pushback against that idea of having to make the walk useful in some way. Um, so that was really almost random that I picked those two things. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the, um, you know, all the green space you see in the movie. That was not in any way intentional. You know, some some people, a couple of people have written me emails and been like, I see, you know, you must not really like the urban part of New York because you, you focus so much on the, the parks and the green spaces. Like, why did you make that decision? And it wasn't a decision at all. You know, the, the, the film was, it was my friend Jeremy who made this documentary and he just, you know, I was a couple years into the walk and he came to me and he said, hey, could I come around with you and just bring my camera and see what I can capture? And I was like, sure. You know, at that point, I'd realized that my my blog is all about the things that I see and what I learn about them. And there was this whole aspect of doing the walk, the experience of walking that's completely invisible on my blog. And so I thought, I just thought it'd be cool to have someone capturing that and, you know, to have a good friend doing it who I could trust and who, you know, I knew kind of saw things the same way I did. Um so he would just come out with me periodically on and off and he ended up doing it for like three and a half years. And so he had so much footage, he had 600 hours of footage and it was from this, you know, just total vast coverage of all of New York city. And so what you see in the movie is just a reflection of what's in New York. So the, the surprisingly large amount of green space you see in the movie is if, if anything, it might be underrepresented underrepresentation of what's in New York. In, in answering one of these emails, I decided just to, to look up the statistics. This person was especially saying, like, why didn't you include more of the important stuff of Manhattan in the movie? And, you know, for me, again, it's not about what's important. It's just about where the blocks are. And so I looked it up, and, and Manhattan is like somewhere between 7 and 8% of the land area of New York City. So it's a pretty small, you know, I spend a pretty small amount of my time there. I mean, it's relatively dense, more densely packed with streets. So I guess I spent a little more time there relatively because there are more streets per square mile. But in terms of square mileage, it's, it's a tiny portion of New York City. And and to put that in comparison to the amount of green space, the the, the acreage of city parks alone, because there's a lot of, of state park and national park, um, national recreational area acreage in New York City. But just the city parks alone, there's more area of city parks than there is of Manhattan, hmm. which I think is kind of a mind blowing thing to a lot of people, because all you see of New York is Manhattan. If you know, if, if you live somewhere else, and you've never been in New York. You know, that's what you see on TV, the skyscrapers, the taxi cabs. You know, maybe you think about Central Park, maybe. But like you think of New York as a primarily a concrete place. And there's there's more park city parkland than there is Manhattan. And if you add in the other parkland, the state, the state land, the, the, the federal land, if you add in, like you mentioned, just there's a lot of abandoned lots and things like green spaces that are, are private land. If you add all that in, I mean, it's got to I don't know, it's got to be twice the size of Manhattan, probably. Wow. Um, so, so and that's what you realize when you walk and the weird, you know, the weird, the, the weird window through which I observe this in the most, um, 
the way that that makes it most hit home the hardest for me is I'll be in some I'll be in some area walking and I'll really have to pee. And you know, if I'm in a busy commercial area, I can always find a public bathroom. If I'm in the middle of nowhere, a, there's a big park there or something, I can always just go find a place behind a tree where no one is and I can pee there. But you know, what do you do when you're in these neighborhoods? They're mostly residential. There's not public restrooms. There's not a big park there. Like, where am I going to pee? And I always find a place, and it's often an abandoned lot. And I walk for 15 seconds to get out of public view. And I realize I just, it took me 15 seconds to be surrounded by trees in this neighborhood where there are no parks. And so that that realization of like, I it's not a big problem to find a place to to pee because there's always somewhere is is weirdly an equivalent realization to man there's a lot of green space in new york city um and so yeah that that was the, the strange way that i i realized how much of new york is not pavement Did um and then also you sorry just to get to one other point you were you know you're asking about um you know you see in the documentary there's a whole section about like plant life in new york and edible plants and you know the tallest tree in the city um and all of that just came also from just walking around and, and being curious and not, you know, I think some people might think, okay, if I was going to do a walk in New York, I would make sure to visit every city, you know, every place that's a, a designated city historical landmark. And that's, that's what I want to see in New York. And that's the lens that I'll see New York through. Um, and for me, I just, I didn't have that. I didn't have any particular focus. And so Fortunately, again, kind of by happenstance, I didn't have a focus because I don't know, I'm not a focused person, but it it just really opened up the city to me because I wasn't thinking of things in terms of like, okay, there's an important building here I need to make sure to get a lot of good photos of. It was just like, I don't know what's here. Let me, oh, that's cool. I'll take a picture of that thing. And a lot of times that thing was like a flower or a leaf. And so I just wanted to know what that plant was, you know, and through that, I learned about some edible plants I didn't know about. Now I'm like, oh, look, I can eat that thing over there, you know, or like, I know what kind of tree this is now. And so it was nothing more than just that kind of general curiosity about the place where I was, which was just really fostered by not having a focus, by not having highlights. And just by being a human in a place with nothing going on in his life other than to look around, you know, that's just all the only thing I could do to prevent myself from wanting to jump off a roof was appreciate where I was. That's all I had going for me. So that's just it just opened everything up to me down to like things that grow in sidewalk cracks in New York City. You know, every every aspect of what you're seeing is is something phenomenal. I mean, a, a plant growing out of a sidewalk crack, like sit there and think about that, you know. It's like this, it's nature's solar panel growing out of this tiny little crevice in this thing humans built to keep out plant life. That somehow enough stuff, enough organic matters landed in that crack over the years and enough nutrients are there for this thing. The seed is landed there and this like thing takes the sun, just takes the sun and turns that into mass. And like, my God, that's a, that's an incredible thing, you know? And so if, if there's that much going on with a, a plant growing on a sidewalk crack, like just imagine how much there is on a single block in New York City. Yeah, and an interesting contrast from the, this built environment, this city that's famous for its built environment versus the very persistence of nature. Um, yeah. You, you were you, you walked a lot with, with Jeremy, um, the filmmaker. Did that shit, like, it's one thing to walk the city alone. When you were walking followed by a camera did that change the energy of of your journey across the city 
Yeah, I mean, at first it definitely did. Um, I a couple other people who like you know I met at a party or something. They're like, oh, that's cool. Like, you know, I do some I I do some filmmaking. Like, maybe I could come follow you around. And that always felt weird to me. Like, I I thought that would kind of change things too much. Um, but you know, I'd had people walk with me at different points. Um, you know, for a friend would be off work one day and would want to come walk with me or like occasionally someone from another country would be visiting New York. And I think they'd Google like walking in New York, looking for some walking route and they'd find my website and email me. And so like some guy from Brazil would spend all day walking around, you know, some neighborhood in the middle of Queens with me, Cool. which is like an, an awesome way to spend like one of your few days on vacation in New York, you know, doing this seeing this place that almost no New Yorkers go to. Um, so anyway, that had kind of showed me the value of having other people with you, even though it did kind of take away from my own attentiveness to what's around me. Um, kind of like for the, when I was mentioning with the walking group, you know, having other people around is also bringing their own insights into what you're seeing. And as much as I've learned to observe things now, all it takes is walking with another person to remind you how little you're aware of. You know, I've spent years and years just doing nothing other than paying attention to New York City. And yet a friend will come walk with me and be like, oh, what's that thing? I'm like, oh, I've never noticed that before in my life. And they'll, you know, they'll tell me something about it because, you know, it's something they know about or something they've experienced. So they're like, oh, I think that's one. Of, it's like this other thing I know about. And it just it reminds you of how much bigger even a single block is than you could anything you could contain in your own brain. And so, you know, there's a real value to, to walking in different ways. I didn't want to be really precious about like, I must do my walk in silence and, you know, full focus on everything. And, and so um, when Jeremy approached me, you know, being a friend already and, and someone who I knew kind of saw the world that way and was also just a really curious person. Um, I, that's why I was like, okay, it'll, it'll be good to have him do this. You know, I think he's the right guy for this. And, um, you know, certainly having a camera on you is a weird feeling at first because you just are hyper aware of like all of your flaws as a person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, oh, my God, I just picked my nose. Oh, I've been how, how long have I been walking this poor posture? Like, you know, my mom always told me to stand up straight. And here I am like, this is going to probably be the first scene in this movie. It's just going to be me hunchback picking my nose walking down the street. You know, that's like running around your mind all the time. But after a couple of weeks, you know, you just kind of get over it. You kind of really, it's a nice thing. You know, I, uh, Jeremy early on, he would start showing me clips from what he had recorded and little rough cuts of scenes he would cut together. And, you know, the first time you see yourself on camera is a horrifying experience. Like what? That's what I look like. That's what I sound like. Oh my God. Like, is everyone just laughing me behind my back constantly? I look like such a moron. And then, you know, after you see enough of those, you're like, well, this is obviously what I look like. People don't go screaming away from me when I walk down the streets. Like, even though it's horrifying to me, this must just be a normal way to be. And so it kind of makes you accept yourself and your flaws more. And uh, so, you know, after a little while, I just became really comfortable with it. And again, it was that, that he was my friend, too. So we were just, you know, he's walking miles and miles and miles with me. So, like, he's not filming the whole time. You know, we're having conversations He's pointing out stuff that I don't notice. I was amazed. He would be, even when he was filming, he would see stuff I didn't notice. Like out of the corner of his eye while he's looking through the camera, he's like, hey, what about that thing? Um, so that was a, an amazing thing about it too. He's just a really, really curious and observant guy. Um, and yeah, so, you know, after a little while, it kind of normalized pretty quickly and it just, you know, just became me and my buddy out there and he happened to have a camera with him. 
And, you know, in terms of like people we'd interact with and stuff, it had different, different reactions. Um, some people would, you know, some people I'd otherwise probably get to talk to would cross the street to get away from us when they'd see the camera coming, you know, you know, you don't want to be on camera any moment, random moment of your life, you know, maybe you're having a bad hair day or something. So, and then, you know, there'd be other people who are like, oh shit, a camera, you know, and they'd come running across the street just to talk to us. So, you know, kind of repelled some people, drew other people to us. But what I learned, which I think can kind of be brought out to a bigger life lesson too, is that, you know, as much as other people might be aware of the camera first, like, why is that guy filming me? You know, we didn't look like a big movie operation. You know, it's not like you had some giant cameras and there's no sound person or anything. It's just me and him out there. So there's like, wow, why does this guy have a camera? And then, you know, we'd start a conversation and very quickly they just kind of forget about the camera being there. Cause you know, when you're fully engaged with somebody, it's hard to keep track of anything else. And, um, so that was a nice, a nice thing to remember that like that human connection is still really the first, you know, foremost thing in our heads when that's going on, it's hard to think about anything else. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it was certainly a, a bit different having the camera around at times, but, um, but over time it just kind of normalized and it just became, you know, just like walking with a friend is, is another way of walking than walking alone, you know, walking with Jeremy and, and being able to turn to him when I have a thought and just, you know, rather than just it echoing around in my own head, I could turn to a person and tell them this thing, you know, that was a nice thing to have going on. Yeah. Th- there's one scene. That that came up in the movie where a guy is sort of upset that you're taking photos near his property, um, and I'm just wondering, did were you walking? Did they ever create suspicion, or did, were you ever nervous in in walking around the city that maybe you were, um, you know, offending local sensibilities, or that maybe you're in a place that that um, is justifiably dangerous? Um. So yeah. Uh... Yeah, you know, I've definitely been a handful of suspicious people, Um, you know, a a few cops, um, just some, you know, private homeowners or landowners or whatever. Um, I mean, I've certainly become aware of through talking with other people how much more that could be an issue for me if I, you know, weren't a white guy. Hmm. Um, You know, there there are people who just because of the color of their skin could be doing the same thing I'm doing and someone who who sees me as just some guy, maybe he works for the city or something. I don't know what he's doing. You know, they see a, a black guy or an Arab guy or something and, you know, their prejudices kick in and like all of a sudden that person doing the same thing I was doing becomes suspicious. Hmm. So I think I experienced relatively little of that compared to what other people might. But um, but I, it still certainly happened to me, you know, a good number of times. And just over the years, I learned ways to diffuse that. Um, part of it is just your own body language going into it. You know, it's not necessarily what you're doing, but how you're doing it. You know, you can move through the world in this kind of confident way that just puts people at ease. I've found, um, so part of it's body language. I've gotten better at that over the years of just, you know, walking down this person's dead end street, tapping the end sign and turning around and walking back out, you know, you can do that in a way that arouses less suspicion. And it's just something you kind of learn over time, you know, as a white guy growing up in America, you know, I'd spent most of my life in places that are predominantly white. And then you come to New York and, you know, big, big, big chunks of city are predominantly not white. And, um, you know, like in my job, even when I was working as an engineer, I'd, you know, go to site visits in the Bronx or places where there just aren't many white people around. And so um, I was definitely, you know, early on, I had that kind of first time in my life thing of like, what, you know, am I offending people here? Like, what am I doing here? What are they thinking about me? 
and you know, that's, I think everyone would feel that way at first. Um, and I, I remember one, you know, one particular example of that that's always stuck with me through the years. This was many years ago now, just one or two years into my walk. I was in Brownsville, Brooklyn, which is one of the, the poorest parts of the city. Um, you know, a lot of public housing there. And there was this mural, just this cool mural um, right outside of, of a public housing project. And, you know, I wanted to take a photo of it. And there was this kind of down on his luck looking, you know, kind of middle aged, just a little bit beat up looking black guy walking by. And I was just thinking, you know, what what is he seeing in me? Am I like this obnoxious little white tourist, like coming to check out this poor neighborhood? I'm like, ooh, look at the colors on the wall. And I was I just remember feeling really self-conscious about that. But, you know, I think I'd already kind of pulled the camera out by the time I saw him or something. So I just, you know, went through it and took my photo and he walks by me and he goes, oh, man, I should. Why am I taking a photo of that? I walk by this thing every day. Like, that's a cool mural. And that just really, again, it was one of those perspective shifting moments of like, we can really get in our heads a lot of times and be obsessing about what other people are thinking. But, you know, I think we're wrong most of the time. And I think anytime you're out in a place and you're just genuinely interested in that place, you know, there's a real act of respect inherent in that. If you go to somebody's neighborhood just because you want to see what's there and how those people live and what's going on there. I think that comes through to people. And, you know, if you're there wearing some obnoxious hipster getup and, you know, you're snapping selfies, that's a different look than like some guy dressed like, you know, I wear these raggedy looking like hiking clothing. You know, I'm cr scrunched down on the ground trying to get this picture of a mural. Like, I think that communicates something different. And what it communicates is not about race and class and any of that. It's like, Oh, look, this person is is really interested in this thing in my neighborhood. Damn, I live here and I've never even taken a photo of that thing. And so there have been there's just been enough moments like that 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 shift the perspective. And it's like, you know, people are not thinking about me what I think they're thinking. And I have a big ability to shape what they're thinking just by my own actions. And if I'm I'm acting in a genuine and curious, you know, out of genuine curiosity and an interest then that just comes across to people. Um, getting back to Peace Pilgrim, I, I wanted to mention this before and I forgot, um, tying into this answer and a previous thing when we were talking about Doc. She has this quote that, that is like something like, um, the world is a mirror. If you smile at it, at it, it smiles back at you. Hmm. And at first it just, that seems like a, maybe a little bit of a superficial thing to say almost. But when you really think about it, what she's saying is that Every interaction you have with another person, half of that interaction is just you. It's what you're putting into that conversation. And so, you know, if you go into a situation expecting people to be suspicious of you or expecting that you're in a dangerous neighborhood, in a way you draw that out of people. Because if you were talking to someone who was suspicious of you, you would not act in a positive way in response to that. You would act negatively. You would you'd want to get away from them. You'd be looking at them in a nasty way, maybe if they're if they're looking suspicious of you or you'd, you'd become suspicious of them, maybe. And if you go into an interaction with a really positive attitude, that's 50 percent of that interaction. You've just you've just put positivity into half of that. Now, all you need is a little positivity from the other person. And, you know, you round up to one. Um, so I've had so many times where where I say hi to someone on the sidewalk who'd been looking at me 
you know, looking at me kind of what's, you know, what's this guy doing here? And all I literally, I just say hi and smile and like, boom, the facade's gone. And like the, the nicest smile comes across their face. But if I didn't have that positive attitude at first, all I would have seen was their suspicion. And I would have left that situation thinking these people are suspicious of me. I had an experience on my cross country walk, a kind of bi- bigger experience of this, of this difference between perception and reality that's always stuck with me, where I was in, uh, in Minnesota and I was walking and, um, you know, it was getting kind of late in the day and I thought, okay, this is, this is about the time I start knocking on doors, looking for a place to stay. And it was a, it was a pretty rural area. There weren't a lot of houses around. So I saw this one house I had a nice big yard. I was just, you know, I'd go for somewhere with a bigger yard or bigger property just cause I didn't want to ask to be setting up my tent, like right outside the person's window. So I passed by this house with a big yard. I thought, this is great. I could go set my tent up in the corner of the yard and, you know, not bother them if, if that's something they're concerned about. So I walk up to the house and this dog runs down the driveway and is barking at me. So I like take some time to pet the dog and make sure the dog's on my side. and It's not going to bite me or anything. So, you know, I play with the dog a little bit. Then I keep walking up to the house and I knock on the door and nobody comes to the door. And so I'm like, okay, well, they're not home, whatever. And then I notice these two kids looking at me out of the window. So I'm just like, oh, hey, are your parents home? And they shake their heads no. And so I'm like, okay, whatever. So I just keep walking. And their dog now, by the way, is my best friend. So their dog won't leave my side. So I start walking down the road and this dog's just following me. And I'm, you know, trying to do the like be mean thing like go home, ah, you know, trying to get the dog to go back home because I don't want the dog to get lost or get hit by a car or something. He's like kind of running out in the traffic with me as I'm walking down the road. And the dog just stays with me. So, you know, like, all right, whatever. So I walk another mile or so and I come up to another house and I go knock on the door there. And uh, this couple, I say, yeah, sure, you can stay here. Um, And I'm like, you know, it looks like it's really going to rain tonight. Is there any way I could like maybe sleep in the garage over there? And they're like, oh, yeah, we even we got a cot. We'll pull out a cot for you. You know, we can set up a little bed for you in the garage. Why don't you go get yourself comfortable there and come in? We're about to have dinner. We're gonna have some grilled cheese. You know, I, I get all set up. I go in. I have dinner with him. I'm like, do you guys know whose dog this is? This dog just following me around. They're like, no, I don't know. So the dog's just like running around their yard. I'm inside. They let me take a shower. We have milkshakes. We have grilled cheese. It's a great night. And, you know, I go to bed. The dog's still out there in the yard. I don't know. Like, God damn, what's going on here? So I go to sleep, wake up in the morning. Um, the wife of this couple I stayed with, you know, she even walks like the first mile or so with me. It's just her exercise walk for the day. And then she turns around and goes home. Finally, the dog had left, by the way, I was glad to see the dog had left that morning and I just keep on walking. And, you know, so from my perspective, that was just this night where I met this really nice family and, you know, that was it. I, you know, I sent them a postcard. I would send everybody a postcard at the end of my walk saying, thanks for letting me stay with you. I made it. Um, but you know, that was just one of many nights. And then, um, about a month later, I get an email uh, from the wife of that of that couple, and she says, "Hey, just want to tell you a funny story. You know, a, a day or two after you stayed with us, we went over to our neighbor's farm to go berry picking. And while we we're out there picking berries, uh, the the neighbor comes over and she says, "Oh, hey, did you uh, <laughs> did you hear about that homeless guy who was who was walking around?" She's like, oh, huh? no, I don't. I didn't hear about that. She's like, yeah, this guy, he he came up to our house and the, the kid said he was peering in the windows and he had a big knife. 
She's like, yeah, well, we, you know, we came home and the kids told us about that. And we, we called the cops and the sheriffs were like driving around for hours looking for this guy. And Sherry, that, that's the woman I stayed with. Sherry was like, oh, you must mean Matt. Yeah, he was walking across America. He stayed with us. You know, we had grilled cheese and milkshakes. And this woman was just so flabbergasted that like apparently what had happened was, you know, the, the parents come home, the kids are tell them this story, right? About this homeless guy, like with this knife. I don't even know where the knife thing came from. I had like a, a little pocket knife, but it wasn't like in my pocket. So that was just a pure fabrication. And I'm like staring in the windows, you know, which I did look in the window because I saw them. So, you know, you can kind of see how kids can take that little nugget of truth and, you know, expand it into something. And anyway, so the, the parents come home, the kids tell them this. And of course, what else would a parent do? You're terrified, right? You call the police. You're like, oh my God, there's a guy with a knife like staring in our house. And so then they notice, hey, our dog's missing. Oh my God, I bet that homeless guy ate our dog. He was probably so hungry. He must have eaten our dog. And so, you know, the dad stays up all night with his shotgun, just sitting in the living room, just waiting for me to like burst in the house and try to kill them or something. He goes out the next morning. He's like, all right, where could this guy be hiding? He's got to be here somewhere. Like maybe he's hiding my tractor. So, you know, he takes his takes his shotgun and goes and jumps around the corner real quick to see if I'm no, I'm not there. You know, so they don't know what to make of it. The cops never found me. Nobody knows. And then, you know, two days later, she finds out from her neighbor, oh, it was this guy walking across the country? Yeah, real nice guy. Yeah, we had a we had a fun night together. And it just made me realize like if if she hadn't if Sherry hadn't happened to go pick berries on that farm that day. Then this woman and, you know, this family would for the rest of their lives think like, OK, you know, today's world is getting more dangerous. Even this rural place I live in, like there are homeless guys walking around with knives now. And I have to make every decision for the rest of my life based on this piece of knowledge. You know, I'm never I'm never leaving my home, kids home alone again. That's for sure. Like I got to hide. Maybe I don't even trust a babysitter. You know, I've got to change my whole my whole life in terms of how I think about my kids now. And like that was reality for them. That was 100% reality. Every bit of that was true. And then Sherry tells him, oh, no, that, that's not true at all. And, you know, the, like to go from truth to falsehood sometimes just is a matter of perception. And, you know, a fact that you didn't know existed changes that whole thing. And so um, that just made me realize, like, we believe things so firmly in this life that are based on nothing or based on something that's not true. When I first moved to New York, people who'd lived here a long time would tell me, oh, don't go to that neighborhood. Don't go to that neighborhood. You know, I'd have to go somewhere for work, you know, somewhere in the South Bronx. And people at my office would be like, oh, man, you better be careful. Like, make sure you're out of there before sunset, you know, all these kind of things. And so you believe it, of course. Like, it's someone who's lived there a long time telling you this. Why wouldn't you believe it? But, you know, you spend enough time out there and you have the, the realization that seems so incredibly obvious in hindsight, which is that this neighborhood like all other neighborhoods on planet Earth, is full of people struggling to get by in life, who are trying to make enough money to take care of their family, who are trying to find love, who are just looking to be respected for who they are. Like that is all that anybody in the world, excepting like the small fraction of, you know, total psychopaths who could be anywhere, who may just be dangerous because they enjoy hurting people. But outside of that, like small fraction of people Almost everybody in the world is just looking to get through the day. And if you are somebody who's visiting their neighborhood and you, you're like, what's your story? Like, you know, what's the thing that gets you through this day? Then like, man, that's a great thing to have happen to you. 
And sometimes it's even more so when it's somebody who looks like they don't belong in the neighborhood because you're getting to share your story with somebody different. You know, you're, you're getting to know that somebody in the outside world, outside of your neighborhood even, cares about you. And that, you know, a lot of people don't get cared about in life. And um, once I realized that, once you have that realization, like, you know, we, it's a cliche to say we're all the same, but I mean, we really are all the same. Like, we all want the same things out of life. And once you know that, like, it just makes it so easy to, to interact with people because you understand them. You know, you don't understand every person, what they've been through in life, but in a, in a deep way, you understand what a human is. And then, the, you know, the things become a lot less dangerous. And again, you know, this, a male speaking, I mean, things are different for a woman, I understand, you know, um, although I do know a, a few women who've walked every block of Manhattan or every block of San Francisco. And so, you know, I think they're, you know, we, we don't always know exactly what's dangerous, but, but nonetheless, it's certainly a, a less risky thing for a male to be doing, no question. Um, but, you know, all I can speak from is my own perspective. And as this white male doing these things, I've just learned that the world is not as dangerous as we think it is. And and by by finding a way to be your true self wherever you are, you're just going to bring the best out of everybody else around you who's reacting to what you're putting out there. Is this still an ongoing project or is it or is it done? Have you achieved every single it, uh, street and area in New York or are you still at it? It is it is still ongoing. I've walked walked about ninety two hundred miles now, which is more miles than I thought there would be to walk. Um, and there's there's a little bit left. I'm probably I'm more than ninety five percent done. Um, however, there's a second part of this project, which now you know at this point takes much more time than the walking, which is the researching of things that I see and writing about them. So that's what my blog is. It's a million photos that I've taken and what I've learned about these things that I took the photos of. And sometimes I've, there's nothing I learned. It's a funny sign and I make a stupid joke about it. But sometimes it's a seemingly innocuous building or car or plant. And I've learned something fascinating about it or even based off of it, not even about the thing, but it led me to this other thing that I really want to tell people about. And so that's become such an overwhelming part of this that I'm only about halfway done with that. I'm still back in 2015 in terms of my what I'm writing about. I'm close to being done with the walking, but I'm not rushing to knock out the last miles because, you know, I won't really feel done at that point anyway. Um, and a lot of what I'm walking now, there are still a, a, a handful of um, full day walks I have to do, you know, where I'm out for 20 miles or something in a certain neighborhood. But a lot of what I have left is little bits and pieces, things that um, have been built since I walked the neighborhood. Just yesterday, uh, there's a bridge that connects Brooklyn and Queens, Queens called the Kosciusko Bridge, or as New Yorkers like to pronounce it, the Kosciusko Bridge. Um, but it, it's, uh, anyway, it's a bridge that, it's an interstate bridge, Interstate 278, the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway. And so there was never, you know, it was never a, a bridge that had a pedestrian path on it. Um, but it was just rebuilt. It's, it's actually two twin spans now, and one of them has this very nice wide pedestrian and bike path on it. And it just opened up a couple weeks ago. Um, so that was, you know, now that's on the to-do list of something I got to go back into. I'd walked every street around there, but now I got to go back and I got to walk this path. And actually it's funny before I knew the bike path opened, you know, well after the bridge opened after uh, bridge construction, of course. So once the bridge construction started on this new bridge, it actually shifted the street grid around a little bit in Brooklyn because the, the, where the bridge lands in Brooklyn's a little different. So there were new streets as a result of that. And I didn't know that there was going to be a new path. I didn't know there was going to be a bike path on this bridge. So I saw on my map, all of a sudden, this neighborhood I finished, now it has a couple new streets. 
So like, I don't know, six months or a year ago or something, I went back and I walked those new streets. It was just a handful of blocks, like probably three new blocks. And little do I know that a few months after that, they're going to open up this pedestrian path across the bridge. Now I got to go back and walk that thing. So a lot of what I'm doing now is like, is traveling to a place to walk a small distance, uh, which is actually cool. It, you know, it could seem frustrating or something, but it's, it's kind of a neat thing to be going back to these places too. And, and um, just do, you know, having a little bit, I walk, sometimes I'll get on a bicycle and, you know, bike to five different places over the course of an afternoon and, and walk, you know, a block or a mile or something in each of them. Uh, so that's, that's what a lot of the end of the walk will be. So, so you're not going to go to like Tempe, Arizona next or, or Boulder, Colorado. Is it going to be like <laughs> iterations of New York or do you have ambitions that, that go beyond New York as far as uh, your walk through life go? I don't know. Um, you know, I didn't know I was going to do this walk till a few months beforehand. I finished my cross country walk without any idea what I was going to do next. Um, you know, when I, it was funny when I, when I finished that walk, everyone was like, oh, what country are you going to walk across next? You know, and I finished or getting to the end of this thing and people are like, oh, what city are you going to walk every street of next? You know, which is natural. You think that's what that person does. So what are they going to do? Where are they going to do that next? But, you know, for me, those things are all just outgrowths of a general, um, you know, love of walking and just curiosity about the world. And so um, I don't know. I have no idea what what form that'll take next. Is there a, a, a Matt Green version of settling down? Um or is there going to be an iteration of you walking forever or is it too soon to say? Hmm. Uh, I guess it's too soon to say. I don't know. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what's next. I mean, I could I could see myself living in New York my whole life or, you know, moving to the middle of Idaho tomorrow if there was some reason to do that. Um, I've, I don't know. I've always loved everywhere that I've lived. You know, I grew up in a small town, Ashland, Virginia. Went to school at the University of Virginia, kind of a, you know, small city, big town, Charlottesville. Moved up to D.C., kind of a smaller, big city. Loved that. I, I never really wanted to live in a city, but, you know, just for work and a and, uh, woman I was dating at the time, you know, we moved to New York together. And I, I did not really want to go to New York, but ended up obviously loving it here. So, I don't know. I think I could live anywhere and it'd be cool. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Who knows what's next? Do any of us really know? This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to the documentary film about Matt, The World Beneath Your Feet, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.